You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And yes, welcome back to your one and only truly independent constitutional conservative source for news and views here at the conservative conscience on Westwood One Podcast Network, powered by Conservative Review. It's Monday morning. We're kicking off a new week, the most important week of your lifetime, the most important election of your lifetime, as is every election. But really, as we often say here, every day is another election. If you actually had a movement that was cohesive, that was smart, that was focused, you have an election every day because every day you could use your platforms to shed light on the issues and influence their outcome. The die, as we always said, is not cast on election day. It's important, but you also got to focus on every day between the first Tuesdays every other November. I know people don't want to hear that now because like, oh my gosh, everything uh, relies on the election. But you know, rather than spending this ominous day or two, and it is very ominous, it's very quiet, it's very like, oh man, before a storm, Monday, Tuesday of the election, the election day itself is always very quiet, very slow news cycle. Um, You know, rather than spend all that time just talking about debating polls, it's the dumbest thing because we'll, we'll find that out late Tuesday night, early Wednesday morning. And we'll dissect the meaning of the results and the exit polling because then we'll have hard data to work on. I mean, here, it's all over the place. Honestly, I wouldn't be shocked at any projection, um, you know, Republicans, anything from Republicans narrowly keeping the House to Democrats narrowly taking the House to Democrats having a wave election. There is that option. Uh, you know, there's a lot of anomalies in the polling. The thought until now was that, you know, even if the polls are somewhat right, they were a couple points too skewed to Democrats in 2016. So that those few points would make a huge difference. Now, the last couple of days, the polls, polling has been pretty bad for Republicans. So, you know, now I wonder even if you add in that handicap, whether it's possible for them to keep the House. In general, I've been pretty bearish on their uh chances of keeping the house the last really 12 15 months just because of what we saw since the virginia elections last november and all the special elections but you know we'll 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 see what happens um you know basically as i always say there are four categories of voters that are important to look at there's the democrat base on one end there's a republican base on the other end and then in between you have traditional swing voters, suburban women, and then you have the missing Trump voters, the Ross Perot voters that Trump was able to get out and actually turn out to vote in 2016. So I think it's those two middle categories that are going to matter. I think it's very clear that the Democrat base is as juiced up as ever. I think it's clear that the Republican base always winds up turning out because they are they turn out in terms – just – 
being motivated by fear of Democrats winning, not motivated by so much of a positive view of Republicans because they don't really offer much. Trump, I think, is offering a vision, at least on some issues, uh, but he's not officially on the ballot. And you have a bunch of milquetoast Republicans running. So I don't think you're going to have the wipeout that you had of some of the special elections because I think the Republican base will turn out, but that's not enough. You do need the missing Trump voters. Will they be motivated to turn out? And then again, the swing voters, I think it is clear Republicans have bled. There's no question about that. Uh, They've bled a lot of that support since 2016. The question is how much? And I think that's going to determine really how bad it is for them um, across the board. Again, remember, historically, Republicans, not Republicans, I mean the party in power, especially if they control all three branches, they do lose. On net, Democrats will win. There's no doubt about that. The question is how much. That's going to matter you know, whether they keep – whether they flip the House and by how much. And you know, do they pick up seven or so governorships? And then obviously you have the Senate where it's a question of, hey, could the Republicans pick up two to four Senate seats? But then you know they do have – there's some polling now that's close in Nevada and Arizona that they could slip backwards there. So you know, th- these are all questions that I'm – I humbly submit I don't have more insight than what you're probably reading and seeing. So I'm not going to waste time on that. But but the big question is, no matter who wins, no matter who wins, we need to start preparing for the day after, which is coming very soon. Will we finally get focused after the election? And what I mean by that is, we spent the last two years re- with Republicans squandering unprecedented power, doing nothing with it, often going backwards, going backwards on health care, going backwards on debt and spending, doing nothing on immigration, nothing. And then you had the phenomenon that we built the last two years that we spoke about so much – That the few good things that are being done are being done by Trump administratively, and then you have the courts just coming in and sacking that, and nobody on our side is making the case that the courts fundamentally do not have that power. So we're going to get to all that today, but I'd be remiss if I don't start the show today with the Iran sanctions. Look, no one could accuse me of being – a hack for the Trump administration, or an anti-Trump hack. I'm a hack for the Constitution. I'm a hack for our traditional conservative values, and I'm going to be relentlessly consistent about that. And where the administration is helpful, we're going to cheer them on. And certainly you've seen that from me the last couple of weeks. Nobody has been a greater defender and um, made the case better for what at least Trump says he wants to do on immigration than I have. Birthright citizenship, obviously, and if we have time, we're going to get to that more at the end of the show today. I know we spoke about that a lot last week, but there's still a lot more to say. But what you're seeing now is very problematic. A couple weeks ago, I noted that one of the greatest accomplishments of the Trump administration thus far has been his Iran policy. That not only did he pull out of the Iran deal, but he used the perfect synergy 
of soft power of sanctions, tools of statecraft, diplomacy, and our economic prowess in energy production. I mean, our energy is really, really humming. Really humming. We're producing more barrels of oil per day than anyone now. We've surpassed Russia as of last week. So we use that to totally own China and the Europeans. Hey, you want to do business with uh, Iran and their central bank and their oil companies? Well, buddy, you don't get our market. We have the biggest supply. We have the biggest demand. And as, as much as these international energy companies are globalists and they're not on our side, they're pro-Iran, money talks. And they, they told the Europeans, despite how hard Europe worked with Russia and China to circumvent those sanctions, they told the political leadership, look, you know, we can't uh, get left cold outside of America's market. We got to listen to them. And there's a huge lesson that I want to glean from here. What's basically happened, what's basically happened the last couple weeks, and to their credit, it turns out they were right, Adam Credo at the Free Beacon, they warned that the Trump administration, headed by the Treasury Department and certainly the long standing deep state at the State Department, were sandbagging this and at the next opportunity, the next deadline to reimpose sanctions, there were going to be major loopholes, major loopholes, and that they were going to grant waivers to all these companies to do business with Iran and basically play into the Europeans, all but uh, making uh, an all but name only the sanctions meaningless, and thereby undoing one of the greatest accomplishments of this entire administration. Because again, this is something he didn't need Congress for. Anything that he needs Congress for is a dumpster fire. Forget about that. That we know the Republican Congress has been in utter failure. I could say that definitively. The worst tenure of a, of a majority party that controls both branches while having a man in the White House who's part of your party. Worst outcome ever. But this is something he was able to do completely administratively, and he did, and he did a good job. Did a good job. And now that's being overturned. Steven Mnuchin, we warned about him, the Treasury Secretary, from day one. Goldman Sachs, globalists, you know, all the Trump supporters threw that epithet at, at Ted Cruz because of his wife. But we warned that, you know, Trump's brought on, brought on a lot of these people, and we got to raise our voices. So the problem is on this issue, of sanctions, it's the Treasury Department that takes the lead. And there, it's not just the deep state. It's just the, it's the Trump appointee. Mnuchin is horrible. Pompeo caved. That's how bad the State Department is. Pompeo spent his entire career militating against Iran. And it's so tragic because Iran was on the ropes. We had them on the ropes. You know, we're doing all this hard power. So difficult using our military in these dumpster fire... Um, you know, is Islamic civil wars when these Sunni countries don't affect us. It's Iran that has the tools of statecraft and the economic prowess to affect us. And we actually were shutting them down, not with an, an invasion, but with soft power. It was working. And we went backwards. We went totally 
backwards. And, you know, it, it's so tragic when you think about this guy everyone's talking about um, who just died last week in Afghanistan. He was a mayor of a small town in Utah. Great guy, and everyone's cheering him, uh, cheering his legacy. He was killed by another inside attacker from this Afghani that we were supposedly helping. Unreal. And Mitt Romney is like, you know, and look, I'm not criticizing Mitt Romney's running to be senator from Utah. And by the way, that's something we're going to have to own on the other side of this election. That's going to be pretty bad. But that that's okay. You put out a statement, but he's like, this is the high cost of freedom. No, it's not the high cost of freedom. What freedom? You know, the government has officially admitted, these are not my words, that we're seeking a political solution with the Taliban. They, they admit that this is over with, that there's nothing left to do there. Yet they still leave our soldiers there. The only thing worse than not having a strategic outcome, a mission, a goal in the Middle East is putting our soldiers in harm's way without that goal. It's disgusting. So, again, I don't want to rehash that. We've talked about that a lot over the last couple of months. But I do want to mention that to piggyback off of soft power. That doesn't cost a lot. It costs us nothing. We just use our bully pulpit, our tools of statecraft, our energy production to just totally shake down Iran. And what happens? So Mnuchin announced today they're giving waiver authority to um, China, India, Italy, Greece, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, and Turkey. We're giving Turkey sanctions relief. They could do business with Iran and won't get punished. So it's the the humanitarian loophole they're going with. They're going with, um, you know, giving waivers to the oil companies. It's over. It's a joke. Annex 3, it's a whole other thing. They're uh, essentially um, giving into uh, Annex 3 to keep the P4 plus 1 entangled in Iran's nuclear program. The whole domestic nuclear stuff. In other words, basically they can continue this... um, domestic nuclear program that won't be used for weapons, of course. It's just so sad. I'm not going to spend so much time on the issue today. More for the political point that does pertain to these elections and, 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 and every day after the election. You know, a lot of people are like, Daniel, we have an election coming up. Stop suppressing voter turnout. Dude, we're not surprised. Anyone who's like that, they're not going to be suppressed by this. Okay, they're 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 turning out. Vote Republican, fine. But the issue here is, what do we do next? What I never understood from our party, our movement, and Trump supporters is the following: they all complain about this deep state. But then when some of us try to actually focus on the issues that the deep state's doing, it's like stop criticizing Trump. Well, Trump. Trump's policies were really the opposite, but this deep state is sandbagging him. And, you know, he doesn't have enough of the backing to really fight back against it. We're doing him and the good guys in the administration no favor by standing down. These are the decisions we can make. And I'm telling you, if, if as I think, and look, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be proven wrong on Wednesday, 
I hope I'm wrong. But if assuming you know if Democrats win back the House, so then any hope of doing things legislatively, not that we had much anyway, um, is gone. You really need to do work the administration executively, the things that he can do. And I tell you this all the time. Every day there's a battle on policy between good guys and bad guys in administration. Imagine if we used all of talk radio and all of the Fox and all their hosts to hone in their close air support for our good guys against the bad guys. Call them out. Call them out. Here's what's going on. John Bolton is the only good guy there. John Bolton was so ticked off about this, he actually he canceled all of, of, of his appearances on the Sunday shows this week. Or maybe it was last Sunday because he's like, I'm not talking about this. He canceled a press conference on Iran because he was so ticked off about this. He's like, I'm not doing this. He fought hard, but it appears that he lost. Now, you're going to see headlines. Oh, Trump administration imposes the greatest sanctions on Iran ever. But that's nonsense. That was baked into the cake when he pulled out of the Iran deal. That was already announced. Now the news is that they're, they have waivers and holes in it a mile wide that render the sanctions worthless. Where was our close air support for John Bolton? And by the way, this is Brian Hook. Brian, Brian H. Hook of the State Department. If you want a name, that's who it is. Obviously, Mnuchin at Treasury and Brian Hook. He's basically in charge of Iran policy. He did this. Bolton was fighting him. And we, we, do, it, we do MAGA no favors. We do the Trump agenda no favors by not speaking out. I say this all the time. This is our problem. We have a movement that is devoid of substance and policy and issues. And don't just tell me, oh, it's two days, it's a day before the election. We were, we were ignoring this all year, and we're going to continue to ignore it after the election unless something changes. This is the problem with the modus operandi. The day after the election, we're going to, no matter what happens, we're going to focus on the Democrat presidential primary, this and that. We're not going to get focused on what we need to do. Focus on the stuff going on in the administration, a lot of foreign policy stuff that doesn't, you know, the president has wide latitude without Congress, foreign affairs, Article 2 powers, so we don't have to worry about constitutional constraints. And you're always going to have this pitch battle with the State Department, with CIA, with Treasury, against John Bolton. And we need to focus on this. It's so dumb just to, to you know, not to inform our listeners and our constituents to call the White House and say John Bolton is, is right. Don't have waivers to the sanctions. Don't give waivers to China and Turkey. This is not what Trump campaigned on. This is not the Trump agenda. I mean, Trump is not going to be more studious and religious on these issues than conservatives are. And if we don't back the good people in his administration, the bad guys will win. So I just start off the show with that issue because to me, this is a quintessential example of how conservatives are asleep at the switch on almost every major issue. And, you know, even where Trump is good, he could be better. 
but we're not giving him the focus and the backing. It would be a shame to lose all this this election for nothing. But this is something, again, you know, in this industry, technology has changed. It's not just radio where, you know, you listen at that hour. A lot of things are obviously online and podcasts. And I want you to take away, come away from every show with new information that you could take with you long term that's not just fleeting for that day. And meanwhile, you know, all the debate about polls, well, it goes away the day after. It's worthless. This is something that affects us all the time. Not just the Iran issue, which is very important in and of itself, but really every issue that we need a conservative movement to be focused, loud, in the face of the people that we need to get in their faces, of which we need to get in their faces. They need to hear from us, our type of voters and constituents and, you know, and, and fans of various shows. They need to hear from their hosts that you know, people count on them. People count on them to inform them on what's going on. And I say this because you're not really going to hear this elsewhere. It's just such a shame because this was such a victory of the Trump administration. Um, just a, a very cheap victory. It was, it was just perfectly cheap. Didn't cost us anything. And now, and now it's going to go in the garbage because we don't have a movement that is focused. That's the thing. Let's focus on what we can do. I can't affect the Democrats and what they do. But I can affect what, what our side does. So that's with Iran. That's one thing we need to be focused on. The next thing, obviously, is going to be leadership elections. Whether it's for speaker or whether it's for minority leader, the day after the election, if we had a focused conservative movement, we would focus on the leadership race in the House between Jim Jordan and Kevin McCarthy. Okay, the reality is that Senate Republicans are a bunch of leftists, and that's not going to change by adding two or three more senators. Either way, you're not going to have 60 Republicans, and either way, you're not going to have anywhere near 51 conservatives. And either way, McConnell is not relenting on the filibuster. And either way, the only way to make him relent is by having Trump threaten to veto budget bills and by having the House, assuming Republicans maintain control, pass our budget with a simple majority and stare down the Senate. That is the only way to change things. Now, if they lose the House, it's still important for two years from now. Because it is very likely that if Democrats do take back the House, it will be a narrow majority built on a lot of tenuous seats. And if Trump does good and is reelected, I would venture to say he almost for sure would take back the House. Now, if he doesn't get elected, well, that's a different story. It's not relevant anyway. Do we really want Kevin McCarthy as the de facto speaker? Because I'm just telling you, you do have to think two years from now. You might think in the minority, it's not going to make much of a difference. They're, they're just going to vote no anyway, knowing that Democrats have the power to pass it with a simple majority. And even though Republicans control the Senate, well, they're not going to block it because the Senate's more liberal than the Republicans in the House. They've never blocked anything. 
So it won't matter much, but it will matter in two years because if they win back the House, then Kevin McCarthy as minority leader leader will be credited as the good leader, good soldier in the minority that brought us back the majority. So that's why we need Jim Jordan. But you know what happened? I was speaking with um, a friend of mine who's certainly going to vote for Jim Jordan. He's a sitting member of the House, and he told me that they moved up the leadership elections by a week. They're going to be held November 14th. They're having the speeches begin at 4 in the afternoon while members are still flying in, so a lot of them aren't even going to be there. And he said basically what he sees is that, and again, we'll know the results Wednesday, that Republican leaders think they're going to lose the House, and basically they're just snapping the ball and then jumping on the ball. Kind of a play like that in football where you snap the ball, jump on the ball. And what he means is that, see, when... Well, given that Paul Ryan is speaker and he's retiring, see, typically when the majority party goes to the minority in the House, you lose. So it's a game of musical chairs and one person is left without a chair because you have the speaker position where you're when you're in the minority, you no longer have that. So it's usually, well, the top gun is now minority leader. So everything goes down and, and then, then you have fights for leadership here. Um, the speaker is... Uh, retiring. He's not coming back. So they would just keep the same stuff. McCarthy would be majority leader. He goes to minority leader. Um, Scalise is majority whip. He'll go to minority whip. And Kathy McMorris Rogers is conference chair, so she'll remain conference chair. And that's basically what they want to do is just have it quickly. Before people could digest, like, wait a minute, what are the options? You know, was McCarthy the best leader? We lost the House. Do we need new leadership? And I guarantee you, if you had Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Rush Limbaugh, all these major radio hosts harping on this race and and warning Trump that he needs to endorse Jordan or at least chase him, scare him off endorsing McCarthy, maybe we have a chance, especially in the minority, because you know a lot of members will be ticked at losing. Again, you know, if, if we're going to say Trump has been great, and, and look, I'm not making fun of it. There's been a lot of good things he's done, and it's all the fault of Republican leadership for all the shortcomings over the past two years. Well, then we need new leadership. And here's a man, Jim Jordan, not perfect, but... Our entire problem for so many years is that we didn't have another choice. And finally, he's giving us that choice. He, he stepped forward, put his hat in the ring. Where's the close air cover? You know what You know what our conservative media movement megaphones are, are, are akin to? They're kind of like having heavy bombers, strategic bombers, tactical weapons. And, you know, we have men in the field dying in the field, you know, getting overrun by the enemy, the rhinos, the deep state, the swamp, whether it's in Congress, whether it's in the executive branch, whether it's in the judiciary, and you have people fighting for it. And rather than sending in your bombers to give them close air support, you just like send your planes out to some desert and start dropping bombs. Just making noise. That, that's what the conservative cable news is like and, and talk radio. It's just noise. 
because we're just not focused to where the firepower needs to be and where it could be effective. So that's the other thing, the caving on, on Iran and foreign policy, which is really one of the most categorical victories. You know, a lot of things were very bittersweet. We didn't repeal Obamacare. You know, aside from the tax cuts, we didn't get much. And by the way, you know, I'm going to continue saying this, but we have the best job market since the 60s, but the economic growth is not that great. If you look inside the numbers, we might not even have a 3% year. We had two, three, 3% quarters, one was 4%, but for, for the year, we might not crack the break the streak. It looks like it's cooling off for the fourth quarter. We might not break the streak of 13 years without a third quarter growth. Um, What is it? Uh, 18, 19 years without 4, 4% growth. And even if you look inside the growth, it's all in consumer spending. It's in government spending. Consumer spending is nice, and that's indicative of uh, the tax cuts, better job market, people have more money to spend, but not on the supply side numbers, on the investment numbers. Because we don't have – we have jobs and industries, but they're not efficiently growing the economy because we have a centrally planned economy, and we have the debt and the misallocation of resources in investments, investing in crap treasuries, which are essentially Democrat votes and dependency in these stupid programs. That is an albatross around our economy, and that is why I think every day I'm still being proven right in my thesis that even at the best part of the business cycle of the job market – we will not achieve a commensurate level of economic growth that we would have achieved with such a good job market in the past, like in the late 60s and late 90s, because we've reached the point of no return with a centrally planned economy and the debt being an albatross around economic growth. And that's a big problem that we're not solving. We're making it worse. Spending is much worse than under Obama, which we thought couldn't get any worse. So you got the spending issue. Next year, next year, we will spend more on interest payments on the debt than on Medicaid. Think about that. Medicaid is growing like a dumpster fire. It's one of the fastest growing things around. I mean, I guess if you combine state and federal expenditures, Medicaid will be more. It means the federal federal is something like $420 billion we spend on Medicaid, so it's going to surpass that. And then in five years, maybe less, it's going to surpass how much we spend on the military. We spend an awful lot in the military. So that's another issue we need to be focused on because it's going to matter. It's weighing down the economy. The economy's fine now. It's good. But again, if this is the best you can do when it's the greatest, what, is, what does this mean once it inevitably cools off? You know, economic growth in the business cycle is kind of like a trip up and down the I-95 corridor. You go on a road trip, you go on the I-95 corridor, you know, you're going to reach a lot of trouble spots in the big urban areas, big population centers. You're going to have bumper to bumper in some places. You're going to have slow down some places. So when you have the clear, you don't want to just be going 65 miles an hour. I mean, you want to be going more like 75 or however much you go. I mean, you want to, you want to floor that. So if we're kind of like, all right, it's go, it's moving, it's good. But again, cumulatively, you really need to be maximizing the, the, the peaks, the booms of the business cycle because the busts are going to be bad in this era.
stagnation is going to be a problem. So the economy's fine. It's good. The job market is as good as it could ever get. But the investments, the efficiency of that growth, kind of, kind of weak relative to the job market. So there's that issue. We're just not focused. We're not focused on our narratives. You know, go, going back to the speaker's election, or if it winds up being minority leader, I was doing a TV hit on Jim Bowling, Jim Bowling's show, Eric Bowling's show, not Jim Bowling, Eric Bowling of CRTV. And uh, as I was coming out, Congressman Jim Banks from Indiana, I guess he was in D.C. that day. This was last, uh, what was it, last Tuesday? He was like, hey, good job, Daniel. You know, he knows me. And I'm watching in the control room as he's now doing his hit on the next segment. And they're talking about um, the speaker's race. And Bowling asked him about it. He was like, well, either one would be good. And I'm like thinking to myself, you know, and, and, and I try not to be rude. I was uh, rolling my eyes in the control room as he was talking. Like, really, Jim? I mean, really? It's a different vision altogether. Incompat- incompatible with each other. Either one would be good, really? Come on. Come on. Either one would be good. But that's what happens when we, when we don't have a conservative media focused on it. And we don't. We don't at all. Then there's the other thing to focus on. So we have Iran foreign policy, speaker's race, spending and debt. Obviously, healthcare is the biggest part of that. And just before I get to the courts, my next topic, um, just on healthcare, you know, the founder of this show who co-founded it with me, uh, Joe Koss, he's, he's our social media director. So he runs our social media platforms. And he, it's funny, he just put out, uh, it's very clever of him. He reminded our, our uh, viewership, our, our readers, he tweeted out my article from almost two years ago to this day, late November, a couple weeks after the Trump victory. I wrote an article, if you remember, laying out the policy, messaging, and strategy for how to repeal Obamacare. You know, just rip the Band-Aid off. Don't do it. You know, drag out the pain. Do it even before Trump takes office because Congress came in two weeks before and Republicans controlled it. Use budget reconciliation for that and then have it waiting for Trump on his desk the minute after the inauguration at the point when they had the most political capital. So then it won't be, well, Republicans might do this. Republicans might just do it. So you actualize all the benefits. And then that's when you could work on your replacement plan. And you have a full two years, meaning if you're going to do anything transformational, you want to do it as far away from the next election. It's just so ominous reading that now. Because if Republicans wind up getting crushed, just know, according to Harvard Harris, the number one issue is health care. Number two issue is immigration. Republicans, that's another issue. Republicans have not utilized that. I mean, Trump's been on message, but none of the Republican candidates, or very very few of them, have consistently made the issue on drugs and gangs and MS-13 and the UACs taking advantage of Americans, stealing our birthright, stealing our citizenship, stealing our identity, stealing our votes, all this stuff with the sanctuary cities, 
72,000 people dying of drugs. They have not made that case. They've left so much on the table. They've not made the case, and they certainly didn't push it legislatively. But let's get to the courts. I mean, folks, could you imagine this birth tourism? Just the, you know, illegal immigrants are like, oh, okay, they're a protected class. Well, let's just talk about birth tourism. These are wealthy Russians or Chinese or other people coming in, taking advantage of us, dropping a baby on a tourist visa. After you read all these quotes of owing full allegiance, not citizens or subjects of another nation, and our entire complete jurisdiction like a citizen, how in the world could you apply it to that? And indeed, obviously, even Justice Gray didn't. But again, like I said, as a matter of policy, we're okay with this. Just don't stick it into the Constitution. But nonetheless, and we're running out of time, there's so much more to say. There's so you got to read Google Wong Kim Ark, Cornell, or Justia, one of the websites that have all the court cases, the old court cases, and pull up the PDF or scroll down to the dissent from Fuller. Read it. And tell me who has the better argument. That's what I can't, I can't relate to. It's like our conservatives now like, oh, Plyler v. Doe. Now, I know I said this last time and I have two articles on this, but I just want to just cap this off by saying, even if we start with the terrible Dred Scott style decision of Wong Kim Ark of Justice Gray, he himself was very clear. You can never apply it to people who initially came here without consent. It would only apply to all legal permanent residents. That is a certainty beyond a shadow of a doubt, beyond any doubt. He used the word domicile 12 times or some form of it like 22 or so times. Domiciled, you have to be a permanent resident, domiciled. That was very clear, very clear would exclude illegals and birth tourism. There is no doubt about that. Even in his terrible system that I spent 80 minutes here telling you how terrible it is, that's how it is. See, the one thing that there's one line that they fail to quote from this opinion. They fail to quote from it. And it's really jarring. So when he says it includes resident aliens, there's one qualifier that he says. And that is very clear. And it is disgusting that people overlook that. Or maybe they just never bothered to read it. Never bothered to read it. And I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, when he said that anyone whose parents, um, you know, are, are domiciled here, yada, yada, their kids are citizens, so, quote, so long as they are permitted by the United States to reside here, done. Because at the end of the day, the problem was, in the case of Wong Kim Ark, even though they banned the Chinese now, at the time that Wong was born, his parents had the right to reside there. They brought them in from the treaty with uh, 
the emperor, they were brought in. Afterwards, they regretted it and they banned them, which it, which Justice Gray said is totally fine. But his point was, look, if at the time you consensually let them in, they had the right to be here and they're you know legally they're permanently here. This is their residence. They plan to live here. Then um, you know, done. Again, that was very radical because at the end of the day, the parents could not become citizens of no fault of their own is because we barred it from them, which we had the right to do. So our point was, so therefore, you can never be a citizen, so your type of immigration can't be that jurisdiction and allegiance. And I think they were right about that from a legal standpoint. The Congress could regulate that, but fine. You know, Ju- Justice Gray did his thing. He says it straight out. He says resident permanent. He says domicile in some form over 20 times. And like I said, in six years before he explained to us what domiciled does not mean. This is when he's explaining how the Chinese Exclusion Acts, and he says, this, this is the most, see, these same idiots, every one of them, every one of them, you know who you are, these thumb-sucking conservative libertarian schmucks, who aren't conservative or libertarian for that matter, they, they cherry-pick, hey, you want to rule our immigration and sovereignty by Justice Gray? 99% of the philosophy will be like me, not like you. And even on that 1%, I disagree strongly with the philosophy, but not the outcome. He's very clear it doesn't apply to illegals. He said, quote, and, and by the way, this is the body of law that is cited in all the controlling cases from the 50s, like Shaughnessy, that Scalia and everyone normal has said is still controlling law, uninterrupted stream of law, it is not within the province of the judiciary to order that foreigners who have never never been naturalized, nor acquired any domicile or residence within the United States, nor even been admitted to the United States pursuant to law, shall be permitted to enter in opposition to the constitutional and lawful measures of the legislative and executive branches of the national government. So right there, you can glean three principles from there. And you really have to see it inside. I'm going to link to my piece where it has in there. But And they're all very important to all of sovereignty, not just the birthright case, but unquestionably show that it can mean illegal. Number one, you see that the political branches unquestionably can exclude anyone for any reason, even unfortunately for you know discriminatory reasons. Number two, the courts have no jurisdiction over the issue of sovereignty. And number three, someone who is not admitted lawfully cannot be considered domiciled in the country. Because notice he references three levels going down. He references domiciled legal permanent residents who aren't naturalized. Even those people could be deported, as he says. Then he refers to a temporary visitor who is not domiciled. Meaning, so there's three levels. Even level two is not domiciled. And then he finally refers to someone who is not here lawfully, who is certainly not domiciled. He's two levels away from being domiciled. You'll never hear this anywhere else. It is beyond the shadow of a doubt. If anyone says the courts haven't addressed this yet, yes, they have. And then, of course, just a couple years later, in um, in, uh, Jutoy, 1903, the court said very clear that anyone here not, you know, pursuant to law, 
is as if they never reached our jurisdiction. Done. Open and shut. To the extent you want to say the court is clear on birthright citizenship, that same court and same author, who, by the way, despite undoing our entire heritage, said very emphatically that illegals are not domiciled. They are not, they certainly cannot have even his watered down allegiance from Wilkins cannot unilaterally assert jurisdiction and nobody could ever, ever say that. You know, just to make this point a little stronger, allegiance and protection, right? Justice Gray in Wan Kim Ark said that the children of, quote, resident aliens who are under, quote, the allegiance and under the protection of the country, they are citizens, right? Allegiance and protection. Those are the words he uses. What does allegiance and protection mean? Well, Justice Gray would know because in the very famous case, Minor v. Happerset, there was a very big case about citizenship. It was ultimately women trying to vote that, hey, we're citizens, so should we be able to vote? And the court said, you can't vote. This is 1874. No, the 14th Amendment doesn't do that for you. And obviously, that's what eventually the 19th Amendment came to overturn, Minor v. Happerset. But the, uh, the court did say, nonetheless, that even though they're not, the women are not voting, they are citizens. You know, that citizenship doesn't necessarily get voting. And because women were part of the social compact. And he explains what that means. And this, there's actually a lot, if you read in, in Minor v. Happer said, again, it's very clear that, that certainly anchor baby jurisprudence is false, but even the regular birthright um, for, for all, mandatory for all legal immigrants isn't true. Um, Justice Gray would be familiar with the definition of allegiance and protection defined in, in Happer said. Because he actually cited the case in Wong Kim Ark. Here's what the court said. And now we're coming full circle to close the show on the social compact. Quote, each one of the persons associated becomes a member of the nation formed by the association. He owes it allegiance and is entitled to its protection. Allegiance and protection are in this connection reciprocal obligations. The one is a compensation for the other, allegiance for protection, and protection for allegiance, end quote. Yet we are now being told that our heritage, our history, and wealth of case law on sovereignty mean nothing, all because of a mindless activist and non-binding footnote from Justice Brennan in Plyler v. Doe a hundred years later, which in itself is an illegitimate case granting K-12 through education to illegals in itself, overturning 100 years of precedent, including Justice Gray, including Wong Kim Ark and Ishimura, incomprehensibly including illegal aliens in the judgment of Wong Kim Ark. Think about it. How the hell could you have allegiance if you're not here and you're considered not here and you have no right to be here? Because allegiance is associated, becomes a member of the nation formed by the association. You didn't become a member. You can't. How could you be under its protection if that very government protecting you 
has the full right, as Justice Gray said, to detain, deport, track you down, and throw you out at any moment. Even retroactively, even the harshest way. As, as that very justice said, if conservative legal scholars acquiesce to this double game of judicial black magic, they deserve to live under the judicial supremacy and all its vices. People are accusing us and the president of trying to repeal the 14th Amendment. But it is in fact they who are not only repealing our Constitution, but our Declaration of Independence, which gives the citizens of this society the right to government by the consent of the government. Thank you so much for listening. God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.